Thank you for tuning in to the Bread of the Word podcast. Bread of the Word is an online ministry striving to feed people the life-sustaining bread of God's Word. Bread of the Word exists for the reclamation of the Bible in the heart, mind, and walk of all the saints of God, for it is the Bible itself which is the ultimate standard by which people are to live and honor God. Thank you for tuning in. This is Bread of the Word. Welcome back to yet another episode of the Bread of the Word podcast, Reclaiming the Bible and Exalting Christ, one verse at a time. My name is Tyler, and we are continuing our very long journey through the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, we've been at this for several months now, and we're getting to the port, the uh, section where it's it's getting deeper, it's getting more practical, but it's, it's, it's hard. And this particular passage is it's hard both to translate um, to, as well as to interpret and it's a passage that's in our modern american culture tends to rub us the wrong way for reasons we'll see as we get into it but we will be covering two verses um, i wanted to do more but as i considered the poetic structure of where we are in chapter five um, solomon is beginning a list of different scenarios and he's rattling them off very staccato that's just one after another and so it makes sense to give each scenario its due time so we will be covering verses 9 sorry 8 and 9 of Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and it reads out of the New King James Version if you see the oppression of the poor and the violent perversion of justice and righteousness in a province do not marvel at the matter for high official watches over high official and higher officials are over them moreover the profit of the land is for all even the king is served from the field that's the text that is all we are getting into today but as we consider the book of Ecclesiastes it is it's poetry it's very philosophical poetry and it has a tendency to hit us straight in the face with hard truths and Solomon is taking up an issue that he first points out a little bit earlier in the book. We saw this in chapter 4, you may recall, with the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. But Solomon is fleshing this out a little further here, and he'll continue to do so throughout the, the following chapters in this section of Ecclesiastes. Um, but now we will, like I said, flesh this out a bit further. It's, it's a hard subject. In 21st century America, there's been much said on oppression this way and that way. You know, um, I don't want to get too political, but we have the conservatives who look at it one way. We have what we would call the progressives or the liberals, whatever word you want to use, on this side that go this way with it. But let's try to look at the text as Jews. Let's try to look at this for a moment as Hebrews. Look at the Hebrew meaning of what's said here. 
and we will work on applying this as modern Americans later. But first and foremost, we have this word oppression, and that is the appropriate word. That is um, the best way we can render that is as oppression. The Septuagint um, uses it as oppression as well. Um, I will not attempt to pronounce it here, but uh, this is a word in the Septuagint that appears almost exclusively in Ecclesiastes. The only exception, the only other occurrence in the entire Greek rendering of the New Test of the Old Testament, sorry, of this word that we translate as oppression is in Psalm 119. And it literally reads in verse 134, Deliver me from the oppression of man, so I so will I keep thy precepts. So we can't shy away from the fact that it does say oppression. It does mean oppression. This is something we have to acknowledge. that The Bible talks about oppression. We can't shy away from that subject. And it's something that Solomon does not shy us away, but he invites us to consider. And in the case of oppression, Solomon tells us not to be surprised. Why? If you see the oppression of the, of the poor and the violent perversion of justice and righteousness in a province... Do not marvel at the matter, for high official watches over high official, and higher officials are over them. A Jewish translation of the same passage renders it in this way. If you see the poor oppressed, rights violated, and justice perverted in the province, don't be surprised, for a high official has one higher watching over him, and there are others above them. That's the complete Jewish Bible, if you want to look into that translation. But the reality of a, fallen, of a fallen world is this. It's sin in every facet of life. It would be quite naive for any of us to think or assume that a world full of fallen, wretched sinners could not be affected by that in some way. James Montgomery Boyce comments on the problem of sin in this way. He writes, as soon as we be begin to talk about sin, we run into a problem. A dislike of the subject of sin and a desire to see ourselves in a better light than the Bible presents us causes us immediately to seek ways to excuse ourselves and our conduct. On that personal level, if we are criticized for doing something, we instinctively present a defense even when we are clearly in the wrong. We say, you have no right to say that, or it's not my fault. Probably many persons never admit that they are in the wrong about anything. We must stop here and grapple with this tendency in our, in our nature. We must overcome it if we are to know ourselves and God. Without a knowledge of our unfaithfulness and rebellion, we will never come to know God as the God of truth and grace. Without a knowledge of our pride, we will never know him in his greatness, nor will we come to him for the healing we need. When we are sick physically and know that we are sick, we seek out a doctor and follow his prescription for a cure. But if we do not know we are sick, we would not seek help and might well perish from the illness. It is the same spiritually. If we think we are well, we will never accept God's cure. We think we do not need it. Instead, if by God's grace we become aware of our sickness, actually of something worse than sickness, of spiritual death, so far as any meaningful response to God is concerned, then we have a basis for understanding the meaning 
of Christ's work on our behalf and can embrace him as Savior and be transformed by him. And that was a mouthful. But simply put, we don't like to acknowledge our sin. We don't like to acknowledge the fact that we are sinful people. But I think it's safe to say that one proof for human depravity is American government. I don't think you would look at um, what happens in D.C. and say, this is what God intended for the world. This is the epitome of righteousness and goodness and truth. No. Um, you ask people what they think of the government, chances are you're going to get some very low opinions. You're going to get some very harsh opinions, maybe even some coarse language from some, because at, at our core we recognize this is not a good thing. What we have going on in government is not good. As 21st century Americans, we recognize that something is not right. And for us to really grapple with that idea of what it should be, we have to go to the law. We've got to go to the revelation of God. We go to Deuteronomy 17. Um, God, speaking through Moses, provides prescriptions for what a king should be. And he promises to inst install a king someday. And, spoiler alert, the only king that lives up to this standard is Christ. But Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20, it reads, When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, take possession of it, live in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me. You are to appoint over you the king that the Lord your God chooses. Appoint a king from your brothers. You are not to set a foreigner over you, or one who is not of your people. However, he must not acquire many horses for himself or send the people back to Egypt to acquire many horses. For the Lord has told you, you are never to go back that way again. He must not acquire many wives for himself, so that his heart won't go astray. He must not acquire very large amounts of silver and gold for himself. When he is seated on his royal throne, he is to write a copy of this instruction, of this Torah, for himself on a scroll, in the presence of the Levitical priests. It is to remain with him, and he is to read from it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to fear the Lord, his God, to observe all the words of this Torah, and to do these statutes. Then his heart will not be exalted above his countrymen. He will not turn from his, this command to the right or to the left. And he and his sons will continue reigning many years in Israel. And so, ultimately, God grounds governance, at least in Old Testament Israel. He grounds the way they govern in what he has said, in what he has called good. That a, a good king will meditate on the words of this Torah, on this book of the law. It says this again in Joshua, that this book of the law shall not depart from thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate on it day and night. We go back to Leviticus 19, prior to Deuteronomy. And says, The Lord spoke to Moses, Speak to the entire Israelite community, and tell them, Be holy, because I, am, I, the Lord your God, am holy. Each of you is to respect his mother and father. You are to keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to worthless idols, or make cast images of gods for yourselves. I am the Lord your God. Skipping down to verse 9, when you reap the harvest of your land, you are not to reap to the very edge of your field, or gather the gleanings of your harvest. 
Do not strip your vineyard bare, or gather its fallen grapes. Leave them for the poor, and the resident alien. I am the Lord your God. That's an interesting point there, because, A, that's a bad business practice. That's not necessarily what a good businessman would do, is leave things behind. But this is an element of hospitality, of caring for the poor and for the foreigner. And this is much of what we see in Leviticus, that there are underpinnings here of that. Verse 11, do not steal, do not act deceptively or lie to another. Do not swear falsely by my name, profaning the name of your God. I am the Lord. Do not oppress your neighbor. We have that word again, oppress, or rob him. The wages due a hired worker must not remain with you until morning. Skipping again down to verse 33. When an alien resides with you in your land, you must not oppress him. You will regard the alien who resides with you as the native-born among you. You are to love him as yourself. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Do not be unfair in measurements of length, width, sorry, weight, or volume. You are to have honest balances, honest weights, weights, an honest dry measure, and an honest liquid measure. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Keep all my statutes and all my ordinances, and do them. I am the Lord. And just from this constellation of passages, there is much said in the law about injustice, about oppression, and about equal weights and measures. If Solomon, being king, was truly obeying this law, if he was keeping in accordance with this law, because Ecclesiastes is written by Solomon, who at a time was king of Israel. And so if he was truly keeping with what God had dictated the king to be, he would study a handwritten copy of this Torah. These are things he would have known very well, likely, that he would have meditated day and night on things like Levit Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 17. These are things that would have been very familiar to him. And so we've got to take that into account as he's drawing our attention to the oppression of the poor, to the tears of the oppressed, like we read in chapter 4. There are things in play here that tie us back to the law. And the law was not just for kings. Let's, let's be clear here that the Old Testament law was not a law as we think it. The law was something that, it was an abiding set of principles for all people. And it wasn't just for um, the king. Like I said, it wasn't just for the kings, but it was for all people. And it, it spoke to how they interacted with each other not just with the magistrate, but how they interacted with citizens and non-citizens, how they um, showed honor to the foreigner, how they showed honor to their mother and father. All of these things are encapsulated in the law. And so when we say the word law, um, we tend to think, um, like cops, we think um, all these police shows on, on TV and stuff, we think the heavy hand of Johnny Law and all these, these stereotypes I could possibly throw out and pop culture references, but the way the Old Testament Jews looked at law was different. Because the word law, what we translate as law, Torah, literally means instruction. And it's a, it's a very different concept. And like I said, the law was not just 
um, a justice um, means of getting things done. It wasn't like Hammurabi's Code, which was um, prior to the Jews, where if somebody committed a crime, they would throw him in the river to and let the gods decide if he was innocent or guilty. That's, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a set of guiding principles that when we abide in them, it builds a society that is pleasing to God. It builds us up as a community. It builds us up as brothers. Now we have to recognize that the oppression of the poor is a problem. Because that is not in accordance with the law. And that brings us to um, Romans 13. As we start fleshing this out as New Testament believers, when we see the oppression of the poor, we also have Romans 13 staring us straight in the face. Let everyone submit to the governing authorities. And again, we don't know what to do with this. If you have been listening to Bread of the Word for a while, we went through the book of Romans um, for almost a year. And we spent a good bit of time talking about government and how this how we look at government what is government and romans 13 was something we spent a little bit of time in and if we if we follow this this text here he says since there is no authority except from god and the authorities that exist are instituted by god now government is not something that we made up it's not a social construct it is something that god set up that god instituted rulers and authorities verse 2 so then the one who resists the authority is opposing god's command and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves that's a very serious indictment that we have to weigh the uh the gravity of especially in the time that we live verse 3 for rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad do you want to be unafraid of the one who is in authority do what is good and you will have its approval for it is god's servant for your good that word servant in greek is diakonos which is also rendered as deacon that the government is likened to a deacon of god that it is someone appointed to serve in the same way that we have deacons in the church who are appointed to serve to serve without being in an authority in this sense. Um, they're under an authority, and they may have a title as deacon, but their title is bound in serving. And so when we look at the oppression of the poor, we're, we're talking about a government that has forgotten the fact that it is a deacon of God. The magistrates are deacons of God. So what does it tell us when the magistrate does not honor what God has deemed good when we have high official watching over high official and higher officials who are over them we have judgment John Calvin once put that we need not labor to prove that a wicked king is the Lord's wrath upon the earth Isaiah 13 says where now is your king to save you in all your cities where are all your rulers those of whom you said give me a king and princes I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. So what hope is there when the world looks like this? When we are the poor that are being oppressed, when the tears of the oppressed are ours, or are our neighbors. 
Isaiah 11 says, And in that day there will be a root of Jesse, and the one who rises up to rule nations. Nations will put their hope in him, and his repose will be honor. This is nations, not a nation, not, not just Israel, but the nations. It says in Zechariah that all the nations will go up the mountain to Zion. Romans 15 cites this passage from Isaiah. It says again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the nations, to rule the Gentiles, in whom will the Gentiles hope? May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. To a world that is falling apart, there is hope to be known because this world is not all there is. And this is not all that this world shall be. Romans 20, Revelation 21, And he who was seated on, seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This world is actively being made new. When we look at a world that is dying, it is a world that is on its way out the door. The old is actively passing away and the new is actively coming. Christ is coming back with the clouds of heaven and there is nothing that can hinder that or um, postpone that, it's done. It is on its way. It is happening. The kingdom of God is both here and on its way. There, there's a twofold thing here. I, I can't. I don't have time to get into all of the inner workings of that. But Christ has established His kingdom, and He reigns now. We are in the reign of Christ, and part of that is breaking the nations. Is bringing the nations to their knees, whether that is before their Savior or before their Judge. And so Christ reigns, but in addition to that, there is a greater manifestation of that kingdom that is yet to come, because behold, I am making all things new. There is, um, there is going to come a day where we don't have corrupt kings um, making decisions, when we don't have the tears of the oppressed, when we don't see the opp oppression of the poor, because the only king we will have will be Christ. The only king that has ever met the standard of Deuteronomy 17. The only king that has truly meditated on this book of the law day and night. That it has not departed from his mouth. But his delight was in the law of the Lord. The only king that has ever met that qualification was hung on a tree. And he died for sin in order to make things new. In order to fix that which is wrong because of sin. Now notice the second part of Solomon's scenario of oppression. The profit of the land is for all. Even the king is served from the field. That is a difficult line for us to translate. Um, other, um, the ESV renders that as, but this is gain for a land in every way. A king committed to cultivated fields. And if you're like me, you look at that and say, that is different. Why is that different? And in terms of textual criticism, many scholars with much more understanding of Hebrew than me have labored greatly over these few words. And the reality is, I don't think we quite have it down. Um, as 
we can understand that in a as a literal in a literal sense but as far as the implications of what Solomon meant it's it continues to elude us at least to some extent but the most literal way we can put that is the prophet of the land is for all even the king is served from the field that's about as literal as we can get and therein lies the remedy in a world focused on money and things the soil in that hebrew context was the most basic quote unquote wealth the needs of the soil brings us all together if the king is as the esv says committed to cultivated fields then there stands a need for laborers and the laborers of which benefit all we're not truly independent we need each other we are all in this together as john don wrote no man is an island he is a piece of the continent he's a part of the main any man's death diminishes me for i am involved in mankind and here with the prophet of the field and the land make no mistake this is genesis imagery one of the things that continues to amaze me about the book of ecclesiastes is how much we have to read genesis in order to read it genesis 2 says the lord god took the man and placed him in the garden of eden to work it and watch over it and then the lord god commanded the man you are free to eat from any tree of the garden notice that's how he words the commandment is he words it in the positive and then works in the negative later but the commandment is you are free to eat from any tree of the garden but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil from the day you eat from it you will certainly die dyingly you shall die as the hebrew literally says and then the lord said it is not good for the man to be alone i will make a helper corresponding to him so he sets adam as we like to call him adam He's, it says the man ha adam the one from the dirt he sets the one from the dirt in the garden to work it and to watch over it it gives him that one rule and so he, he sets them on his task and then he says it is not good for ha adam to be alone i will make a helper corresponding to him john calvin comments god begins indeed at the first step of human society yet designs to include others each in its proper place the commencement therefore involves a general principle that man was formed to be a social animal so solomon uses the image of a garden to take us back to the garden the reality is that god did not make us to be isolationists and the garden seems to capture that imagery very well that if the king profits from the land then someone has to work the land somebody has to harvest somebody has to plant somebody has to nurture and then the the profit of the land is for all god did not make us to be isolated to be alone he made us for community and he reasserts this in the opening of the book of numbers if we turn to the book of numbers chapter one we see a very similar layout and it says 
in verse I'm sorry, in verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tabernacle of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt saying take a census of all the congregation of the children of Israel by their families by their fathers houses according to the number of names every male individually from 20 years old and above all who are able to go to war in Israel you and Aaron shall number them by their armies and with you there shall be a man from every tribe each one the head of his father's house so if God was building a sanctified community a community that has definitions in the Old Testament then let's take a moment to consider the New Testament church in the light of that plan turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians Ephesians is one of my favorite books in the New Testament. I have been through Ephesians many a time. I, I don't say that to elevate myself, but I have walked through Ephesians probably a half a dozen times in the years I've walked with Christ. And it continues to blow my mind. It continues to strike me as new, as fresh. I can read these words time and time again and there are new things because the Holy Spirit is continuing to illuminate this magnificent book so picking up in verse 11 therefore remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh Paul's writing to a church that is Jew and Gentile who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh of hands that at that time you are without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who was made both one, Jew and Gentile, and he has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you, who are, who are afar off, and to those who were near for through him we both have access by one spirit to the father now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints and it's worth noting that when we read the word saint in the new testament the greek is not a noun it is a verb not a verb it is an adjective it literally reads with the hagios with the holy you are fellow citizens with the holy and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit.
this did not start in Matthew chapter 1. God was building a people for himself in Genesis. When we look at the overall plan of the Old Testament, we see Genesis with the creation of man and the establishment of certain families with whom promises are made, through whom all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, that all the, the family, for the sake of all the families on the earth. Exodus, that family has grown to the Hebrews, and they are the Israelites, and they are in bondage in Israel. And God raises up Moses to lead them out of Egypt, so that they may serve him. In Leviticus and Numbers, he is purging his holy people, his sanctified people, his chosen people. But because of disobedience, they do not enter the land of promise. And so that generation dies, and their children are raised up in Deuteronomy and instructed in the same law, in the same wisdom that their fathers were. And they are commissioned to go into that promised land to possess it and to be fruitful and multiply, to eat of the fruit and gr grow the land and live in the houses. And God is, he continues building that people through the Old Testament, despite all of their, their sins and all of their unfaithfulness and all of their shortcomings. It is a forward progression. It's difficult at times, and there are times where they move very slowly or they even take steps back, but in the grand scheme, God's plan to build a people for himself is a forward progression. And then we come to Matthew chapter 1, talking about the lineage of the Messiah, of the promised Redeemer. And Matthew, um, for reasons of introduction, begins with a genealogy. He asserts that Christ is qualified as Messiah. That he is the heir to the throne of David. He is heir to rule Israel as king. And so in Matthew chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron and Hezron begot Ram. And we go through all these names. We come down to verse 12, and after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconia begot Sheatiel. He continues through the history here. Down to verse 17, sorry, verse 16, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ, which is the Greek word for Messiah, for anointed one. So all the generations from, Ad, from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until Christ are 14 generations. It's 42 if my math is right. This is a big story. This is a complicated story with twists and turns and there are literally dozens of generations packed in here that God has been building this this temple for a long time metaphorical temple that we are the household of God and he has been building this for a long time this is not something new that just appeared this is something that God has been working towards for a long time he's been 
um, laboring at this. He's been laying things in place to secure for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And last but not least, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Starting in verse 7, it says, But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on, st on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of God because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect, because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Meaning we're transitioning from old administration of the covenant to new administration of the covenant. From Moses as mediator to Christ as mediator, which is better, and tr the true and better fulfillment of the covenant. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their hearts. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. The church is the further realization of the work of of God in building for himself a people. That which is wrong with the world is repaired through the sanctifying work of wretched sinners being brought into the fold of God. R God has ransomed for himself a people from a fallen world and paid with his blood to redeem them and raise them to newness of life. We are no longer the same and this world won't be either. Because God will dwell with his people, and in him we will rest. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Bread of the Word podcast. I pray that it has been beneficial to your walk with God, and that he has called you into a deeper relationship and fellowship with himself. If you want to hear more from Bread of the Word, feel free to hit that subscribe button down at the bottom. Get notified about new content whenever we go live. Um, you can also watch us on Rumble Video and YouTube, or you can listen on your favorite podcast platforms. Um, you can also find us on social media if you want to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Gab. Links will be provided in the bio um, if you would like to check those out. And there will also be a message in the comment section um, a free gospel message for download entitled The Two J's, The Joy of the Potter and the Journey of the Clay. That is something that I've written, that's something God laid on me to write and then send out. And so I'm not making anything off of it, I'm not selling it, it is free for you to read and share. We need a further saturation of the gospel in our world, in our culture, and it starts right here. Bread of the Word Ministries exists for the reclamation of the Bible and the exaltation of Christ through the reading and teaching of His holy transformative word.
I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. God bless. Matthew 4.4. 4.